Queer Rights Sessions, QWS Podcast, in partnership with Blarney Books and Art in Port Ferry. I'm your host, Rob, aka RWR McDonald, and this is a Words and Nerds spin-off series. Thanks, Danny. I'm coming to you from the land of the Wurundjeri people, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Each month, QWS Podcast will bring you reviews, shout-outs of LGBTIQA plus writers, and feature an interview with a queer writer from our rainbow communities. And now on with the show. Ailey Scribner is a former festival director and the author of Dirt Town, which was published internationally in 2022, published as Dirt Creek in the US, where it was a US Today bestseller, and quickly became a number one Australian bestseller. The novel has been shortlisted for multiple national and international. In 2023, it won the ILP John Creasy New Blood Dagger, a Lambda Literary Award for the LGBTQ plus mystery, an Arbia for General Fiction Book of the Year, and a David Award for Best Debut. Haley has a PhD in creative writing from the University of Wollongong and lives in Darawal country on the east coast of Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Haley. G'day, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's me clapping. Uh, <laughs> so, Haley, um, we start off QWS with an opening question, which is, how has your work influenced your idea? I think I've been thinking about this a lot, and it's a really good question, and I like the way it's phrased instead of the other way around. And I honestly think that bringing a book out into the world has given me a level of confidence and a kind of I think for a long time I had a feeling of like, what is the point of me? Which is a really depressing like (laughs) thing to think. But I think that when you work on something like a novel and you're able to get something down about not even how you feel about the world, because I think I already feel differently about the world having written Dirt Town, but it really was this this thing of I'm here and I and I've done something that for so long I I'd so admired in other people, right? The ability to to articulate something about the world and how it might work for someone. Um, it was just incredibly, there was an incredible sense of pride and an incredible sense of um, this is possible for me and this is something I, I feel completely privileged to get to do and want to keep doing. Whereas I think any writer knows the sort of deep belly of despair. Often it's sort of, it sort of seems to be right before the point you realise you really are a writer because you try and stop, you try and, and you say, okay, this is too much now, this, is, this has cost me too much. Um, and then it's almost like in giving in giving up or trying to give up, that's where you find that actually this is what you should be doing. And so, and then of course, it's kind of gone on and been this completely unexpected book in many ways, and that I did not even understand that I was writing a crime novel when I first began writing Dirt Town. And so I've learned a lot about myself and a lot about the I don't know why I seem to need to kill people off, but I think it's something that I want to keep doing. And so that's kind of fun. That's, learned that about myself. <laughs> that's brilliant. Thank you. And so much to unpack there. So what I want to do for our listeners is just read uh, the blurb around Dirt Town and then, yeah, so many questions. All right. So uh, in the hottest November on record when Esther Bianchi doesn't make it home from school in her small country town, 12-year-old Ronnie Thompson would do anything to find her best friend. 11-year-old Lewis is afraid to share what he knows about Esther's disappearance because it would mean revealing his own secret. 
Detective Sergeant Sarah Michaels has recently broken up with her girlfriend when she arrives from Sydney to look for her fears for the girl are amplified by the fact that she knows better than most what people are really capable of. Constance, the missing girl's mother, is reeling from betrayal and is unsure who she can trust. Dirt Town is what the kids of Durton call the place where they live and is a nod to the Greek chorus of young kids woven through the narrative. Ultimately, Dirt Town is the story of what the loss of a young girl does to a whole community and the ways for better and for worse that we are defined by those around. Congratulations, <laughs> Hayley. I absolutely inhaled Dirt Town, if you could say that, and I loved it. And I just want to go back to what you, you said earlier. So at what point did you realise that this was either going to be, I guess, marketed as crime or that you actually, this was a crime novel? How, yeah. How it's, I definitely... Um, prescribe to the idea that almost, and it, maybe it's an idea that just helps because I'm an incredibly anxious person, but the idea that the book already existed in some form and I my job is to kind of try and pluck it from the ether and yeah. and make it be what it was always meant to be. So I very much just um, prescribe to that idea, which makes it less stressful because it, it removes me from the equation a little bit more in a way that helps me write. It's like we're just trying to get what this thing was always meant to be. And I think what happened with, with Dirt Town is, I was not well read enough in crime even to realise that the, the what the story wanted to be from very early on, the very first thing I wrote was this chorus of kids that mm -hmm. you mentioned in the summary. Um, and it was meant to be a short story. It was a side assignment that I was working on. Oh, wow. Um, well, I was meant to be writing a novel actually set in space. It was going to be this really funny novel set in space um, for my PhD. That is like what I had pitched to my um, PhD supervisor in the university and I had gotten funding to write my funny space novel. It was also going to have a character who was um, trapped inside an armchair. It was a whole thing. It was, wow. Which is very difficult to have a, give a character who is a piece of furniture agency, but um, <laughs> maybe why. But anyway, I sat down to write this story and they were um, kids in the town. So I'm from a small country town and I just started writing about all the different ways that kids in my town go home from school. Mm. And there's this feeling of, I think when you go to reach down for a detail and it's there, that when you're a beginner writer, because I really hadn't written that much, when I got managed to talk my way into the PhD, really? I had a few short stories oh. um, and I had done um, a, a subject with the woman who would go on to be my PhD supervisor who had read a short story of mine and said, oh, you should do your PhD. Like I'd already done another degree in something else and I'd done my honours in something else. And anyway, long story short, um, I was doing these subjects while I was working full time and it, they, she just sort of said, you could do this, like you could start the PhD. So I had been trying to publish little, little things but I had this feeling deep down that I wanted to write a novel. And I think when I sat down and wrote that short, short story, it was such a relief to find details and to actually just be writing because my process was so already so fear-laden and so anxiety-ridden that just actually having more words at the end of the session than I started with was a physical relief. Yeah. And so I, I went, okay, well, if this is where the words are, like, let's follow that. But within that story, it's all of these kids coming home describing how they got home. And I always thought, the, what when you do that is because something has happened. It's like, where were you when this thing happened? And in that moment, almost instantaneously, I knew that a girl had died and I knew who had killed her. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a spoiler to say that Esther is dead. Like we yeah. we know that very quickly in the opening of the book. And so there was this feeling of I think in that moment where I I knew the the shape of the story that we would find out what had happened to. Her. I think I already had a crime on my hands. I was just really. <laughs> it took me a long time to kind of catch on 
And a lot of it was readers saying, it's all well and good that we find out what happened because the ultimately that chorus of kids are there and see what happens in a way that's a bit spooky. Like it's not really, it's not grounded in reality. They're not actually there. They're more of a kind of like that Greek chorus of this is what happened. This is so, what we saw. Yeah, they're like a collective thing. Yeah, very much, like, much yeah. so. So they kind of have um, access to things that they shouldn't have access to, yeah. which is very common in fiction, really. Like we're, we're really okay with an omniscient narrator yeah, absolutely. most of the time. Absolutely. Um, and I think it works so well. But I think what readers then started saying is, but we want to know, we want the other people in the story to get to find out what happened to Esther. And right. so that's where the, the um, and we were talking earlier today, this idea of um, for Sarah, who is my detective, mm. to be interesting to me. She actually started out as a male character who was just kind of there investigating. And then for me to be interested enough in that part of the story, mm. I made her a woman and I made her queer so that I could just... <laughs> So I would want to hang out with her to, enough yeah, to write her story, yeah. basically. And so it's interesting, you know, because I'm I'm a bisexual writer and I've got this lesbian cop and a young gay boy. And it's really interesting to me, I think, going back to that idea of being an emerging writer or trying to just get something down, I think it was a little bit easier to have. I really wanted to explore queerness and I wanted, I think Dirt Town is really kind of an ode to a very specific moment in my childhood of feeling a certain way about a certain place. Yeah. And I've taken aspects of that and like doled it out to different characters. And so I think Lewis gets a lot of the shame and a lot of the sort of fear. And I think his situation is pretty dire, certainly a lot more dire than my own situation. Um, and then with Sarah, I wanted a character who had the, was not coming out and was not, yeah. the point of her is not that she is in any way concerned or worried about her own queerness. And yeah. so those were the two characters that, it allowed me to kind of look at things that I wanted to think about without it being too close. Whereas my next book will have a bisexual protagonist and that's been kind of fun to, I feel like you're always just parceling out bits of yourself. Do you feel like that? Yeah, absolutely. When you're writing, you kind of, yeah. And and I was saying to you earlier, I really love um, uh, Lewis and you captured it so beautifully that, you know, he's struggling with, his sexuality and, and the reason he's struggling is because of our culture of the town and you just capture that and that shame and it's just so beautifully done and I, I loved you know Sarah's queer but it's just you know it's it's her identity so reading it as a queer person is just it, it's great it's still ticks all those commercial boxes you, you're doing all of that and it's not front and center but it still feels like this is a queer yeah. novel which is which is you know the sweet spot I suppose. and it feels really good that this book is always the book that I wanted to write and then somehow it's it much more commercial than I ever thought it would be I thought this was going to be my weird sad little story about a town that um where a crime had happened not even a crime story I always thought of, yeah, it's a novel right. where a crime yeah. has happened yeah um but what I love about a making it a crime story definitively made me a better writer the learning sort of how to move a reader through a story and make sure that everything you're giving them is what they need to to get to the end point where you want to leave them is an incredible discipline. And I am such a better writer for taking for taking that on. Um, and I really like what it does to the writing because I think the hard thing about being a human and being alive is, you know, trying to make the right decision and find significance in what's happening. And I think what a crime novel really does is you know everything you're being given is significant and that it all... Yeah matters and so how Lewis feels and how Sarah feels are all actually feeding into the end point um and so 
there's this feeling of I'm incredibly I think everyone is a sort of a character driven writer really at the end of, end of the day um but I think what I love is is when character and plot are so enmeshed so the mm. deeper you go into yeah. these people the more the plot can act upon them because you know you know what's at stake for them you know what's wrong for them in the world or what misapprehensions they might have about the, how the world works and you know the story is going to have to push on those things so for me it felt like it was this opportunity to add another layer of richness with characters in a place that I, or like I, I spent six years writing the book and the, probably the first four years not knowing what's a crime story and then yeah. working my butt off to try to really make sure that that landed. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, it's still, it gets called like a slow burn or, and I'm really fine with that. Like there's no car chases. There's no. Um, oh, but I think you do, like there's definitely that narrative drive that's through. You have those moments, obviously. Spoiler free listener, um, but you know, we just like, whoa, and uh, I'm taking sort of some of the revelations that go on, and all the time, you know, you capture the setting of a small town. And I, I grew up on a farm, and you know, I'm known small towns, and you capture it so beautifully. And I love the chorus and that idea of, you know, the kids know, like, where were you when this happened? Is so perfectly done um and with with sarah you know she's an outsider and you have that sort of you're exploring that and that idea of i don't know i think you know as with a queer reading that you sort of this um uh, you're a queer person in a very heterogeneous town and that's just the culture it's, it's... yeah and when i lived in my small town we left when i was 12 and i do think this book is almost a testament to that time yeah and and so I'm, i always am careful to sort of say I'm not, I have no problem with small towns. And I particularly think now small towns uh, uh, can be so radically different to what they have been. Absolutely. But I think it, it was in a book, you have to go specific. And I think it felt really valuable to kind of take a time and place and feel like I had captured something about, about that feeling or about, and I think everyone understands isolation, even if it's not physical isolation, but what setting, what that physical isolation allows you to do is to play it up in terms of the plot and, and enrich that feeling and kind of, and, you know, I've been listening to other episodes of the podcast. We were talking about um, two of my faves, so Candace Bell and Jeremy Lachlan, who in two different ways are such joyous writers. Like yeah. there's such joy and energy and, and gosh, I wish I was that kind of writer, you know, but I think I've always loved reading things that almost show that I'm not alone in suffering yeah. Or, and not that, and I, I really don't want to conflate queerness and suffering because that's absolutely not what I believe. I mean, yeah. I get such joy from my own queerness. And I think that sense of what is always, what I look for in my reading though, is to feel less alone. And I think when you watch characters going through difficult things, and there's all kinds of di 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 different difficult things in the book. Yeah. Um, you can look at a character like Constance, who is straight, and that is the source of all her woes, right? Yeah, like, absolutely. <laughs> and know. she's so alone, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. I think the book really pushes her into such an alone place. Mm. Um, but I think there is a joy in that, in that sense of you can see that it's, that it's arbitrary in a way or that there is nothing about these people that is tied to their suffering. It's that suffering is not optional and, and you, we all suffer in specific ways. Yeah. Um, I wish I was not a, hey, we all suffer, right? I would really love to be like, hey, <laughs> we, all, we all go on adventures and we all like yeah. are really funny. And, but you kind of, uh, I think someone, you know, you get a punch card and that's just the kind of writer <laughs> that you are. And again, it comes back to that idea of that 
the story already exists and I'm just trying to tell that story as best as I can. And how do you feel around, it's something that's sort of been exploring, crime, fiction and motivation of characters. Like this, it's sort of, do you feel like that's kind of an intertwined, particularly when you look at like an antagonist, everyone wants to know why are they doing what they're doing, but even with your protagonist, right, that motivation we were talking about, Sarah, why why she chose to be, you know, join the police. Yeah, I mean, I think um, there is a sense in crime that you're going to get an answer to the question that is posed by the death usually or the, the bad thing that has happened. But I think any time you introduce a character, the things we learn about them should be kind of acted upon by the plot. And that's why I think any work you do on character will always be rewarded in ways that you can't even necessarily anticipate. So I'll give you a really concrete kind of goofy mm-hmm. example there. Ronnie has a big fat ginger cat um, called Flea and he was just around. He was just in the draft and I actually adopted a ginger cat like two years into writing the book when Flea was already in the book but it felt like um, he and he was just around and he wasn't necessarily doing anything. He was being a cat in various sort of scenes and I just and I had this backstory of how he'd gotten his name and you know and it was sort of but he was just there and and, you know if I was being really honest with myself wasn't necessarily doing anything in the story yet. And then there was a point where I needed Ronnie to move from one place to another. And I was like, why would she do that? Like, there were all these factors going on that would make her want to just stay where she was. And then she sees Flea. And I think this is not giving anything away, but it's that sense of um, sometimes you can go into character and find things like that she loves her big fat ginger cat. And then there it is when you need to solve a plot problem. And so I don't know if that answers your question, but I think we want to know people's motivations yes. all the time anyway. And yeah. in crime, there is almost more of a promise to the reader that that you will get that. Yes. And and even not even in things related to the crime, this feeling of we will hopefully understand why people make the decisions they do. But I really love to also let some contradictions sit in. I don't think people know what they want or, or always at all. And I often think they think they know what they want and they actually want something very different. Or, and that's fun too as a writer to kind of, hang out in that space absolutely i think it totally that subconscious um desire or character happened where your character doesn't even know why but you as the author it's not you don't right but those drivers and things i think is so fascinating yeah yeah and it's part of the joy of it for me i think is that they feel like little sock puppets at first and i and i i used to really kick myself for not a lot of writers, it seemed to me, felt, you know, they seemed to just kind of have these characters stroll fully formed into their minds and then they set about doing the work of the story. Whereas I have, I literally can't see them. I don't know anything about them. It's very, um, it's almost like they're just not even a soft puppet. They're like a little cut, like little piece of paper in the shape of, you know, like one of those paper dolls. Yeah, yeah. And then I literally take that paper doll and I put it in all sorts of situations to learn things about it. And it comes out of that situation with a little ginger cat or wearing a cowboy hat or, you know, and yeah. it's, um, it's a painful way of working, but it was absolutely worth it because the more I know about the characters, and I think I'm getting better at kind of um, integrating people I know or or kinds of people into a character, and I guess making decisions. I think the problem with Dirt Town is it took me a long time to make certain decisions. Right. So be like, oh, Ronnie's dad is dead. No, Ronnie's dad lives in the next town. No, Ronnie's dad is lovely and lives next door, you know. And all of it was true in the document at one time because I wrote 300,000 words when I was writing Dirt wow. Town. Yeah. And, and it was all just in this big document. And so now I've learned to go, okay, if you've made a decision that that's what her dad is like or that's where he is in the story, then 
leave that fixed unless you need to change it for some other reason. But the, the, the beauty of writing and what I would say to any emerging writers is the more decisions you make and the more things you fix in place, this amazing complexity can start to emerge. Like the story is so much smarter than you are. So once you know there is a cat and you know that Ronnie needs to move from here to there, your subconscious can go, well, what about we bring these two things together? And that is the lesson that I really felt like I learned with Dirt Town. So how, so for me with, with my subconscious, I trust it and take through usually the shower, sort of, <laughs> you know, when yeah. I can't write anything. For you, ha- have you sort of learned a way to kind of access your subconscious or uh, you, is it just a kind of, I know that it will turn up? Or? I definitely try and end a writing session with some kind of articulated question right. or problem that I can't solve. And I feel like that allows my subconscious to go away and do some work in, in the in-between times. Yeah. So I'll often um, try and and I, I write to myself a lot. I have this really big notes file where I'm like, well, the problem is today that I'm and almost in right, beginning to write, the problem is dot, dot, dot. It's like some deeper part of your brain start, t- starts to tell you what the problem is. And it seems like a waste of time because you're not in the main document. You're not writing the scene that you're meant to be writing. But sometimes you you find yourself writing, oh, the reason this scene isn't working is because I don't understand why this other person would even come after what has just happened. And you go, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Like, that is a good point, subconscious Haley. Thank you. Allow me to go and think about that. You That's know. brilliant. Um, so I, I write to myself a lot and yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a, a slow writer or I enjoy writing knowing that I have time to, to noodle and talk out loud to myself. Yeah. Because I think some people just have the, the knack of going, this is how the story is going to be. This is this character and how the story is going to act upon them. But the way I do it, at least the glorious thing about publishing your first book is you're like, well, I know that that works. And I am, I'm trying to, like I said, take better notes. And I, I use um, Word and the, you know, the headings function. Do you ever use this in Word? Oh, no, no. It's amazing. So you can insert headings and then create a table that you can then jump around in. Wow. So you can jump between scenes. I don't write in a linear way at all. So I, I'll write the final scene and then a scene that I don't know where it's going to go and a bit of writing that will probably never be in the book. So if I keep kind of, I now have more of a discipline of going, okay, this is what this is for me to find it again in the document. So what what do you, do you label your heading? Is it like chapter one or inciting incident, midpoint? What? Oh, yeah, that sounds really like someone who knows what they're doing. <laughs> um, no, it's not. It's literally, um, you know, Finn yeah, talks, Ronnie thinks about a banana. Oh, right. And, yeah, yeah. and then I go, well, why would she be thinking about it? And eventually, you know, and some stuff can get moved. Yes. And again, so the, the scene, like all the scenes with Flea would have been Flea does this or Flea does that. Um, and then as you, the more things you fix, the more you go, well, maybe Flea could, could be there. or So it's almost like a scene summary or a signpost. I tend to write, um, it sounds dumb, I write in sentences unlike the rest of the world. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll often be writing. And, again, it's taking that paper doll and putting it in a situation. And so yeah. I'm not even writing a scene that I know what it is yet, but it's I'll try and start with something um, or I'll let a conversation roll out and kind of um, – it's very inefficient, but it, it works. Like eventually you go, okay, um, this seems to matter to them and how would that affect this other scene that I have decided is going to be in the book and sort of. Yeah. Yeah. I do think a lot more now about trying not to or trying to bring it back to how is this going to feed the other things that I've decided on in the story. Yeah. And I'm, I'm pretty willing to let it sit in the document for a long time, but at a certain point if it hasn't 
connected up with something else. Do you ever get that feeling when you're writing something which is a character says some piece of dialogue or there's something and you don't, it doesn't quite make sense or you don't know why they're saying. Do you ever get that feeling like, okay, but. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. then it's like, well, this line of dialogue has been given from the orb. And so, you know, and I will work backwards. There are definitely parts yes. in Dirt Town where I know, I'll give you another good example. There's a, was one sentence I wrote and it was, um, one character saying to another, like, well, your husband's never wanted to come to our house. And I didn't even know what that meant. Wow. And then it's like you go back. And and I wanted that sentence to be true, so I had to go away and make decisions about other things. Yeah. And then um, it was like I'm working towards this little bit of the orb that I've... That's amazing. So that came to you like... Well, I already... Yeah, I think... And for those who have read the book, you'll you'll understand. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Um, George Saunders does this great thing and he talks about it in his book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. Got to get my determinants right. <laughs> um, and he talks about when teaching, he says, I want you to preface everything I'm about to say for the next semester with George says, you know, bracket, and then everything he says the whole semester and then end bracket. at the He says at the end, okay, that's the end bracket. So everything that you just heard is what George had to say about writing. And I think anyone who talks about their process should kind of have, should do that yes. because yeah. Yeah. I know the absolute opposite works for so many people who work in a, their brain works differently than yeah. I do. Yeah. I guess I'm, I do enjoy talking about my process though, because I was such a, it felt so out of control and kind of all over the place and like a bit wishy-washy and yet it did work. And so anyone who, who finds they can't write in another way and wishes they were, a different kind of writer. Yeah. Just know that all is not lost, I guess. Absolutely. And I think every writer has to figure out the kind of writer they are and what works for them. And that is almost your number one job as a writer. Like that's number one on the list of tasks in a given day. Like how do I put myself in the way of being the writer that I'm supposed to be? Absolutely. And and trusting. Once you realise that, just trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And writing it down and articulating it to yourself. This is a big part of my process. I actually have a little handbook that's like, a guide to the Haley 3000 or whatever. And it's like, <laughs> this is what Haley does when she's drafting. And this is what Haley does in editing stage. And Brilliant. when you get a big bit of feedback, it is recommended that you go and sit by the ocean and cry. And then, you know, and that will work. And then you can get on with the work. of Because I love editing, actually, because so many things have been fixed. And then we're just getting the even more tight and delicious connections between what's already there. Yeah. It's definitely the first draft stage where you're trying to make the universe is what yes. it feels like. Yeah. yeah, and so for you with the first draft, and I know, you know, it's going to be different each each story. Um, so for your second, you know, the, the manuscript you're working on, how was that first draft process? Was it quicker? I was going to be different? Or have you got sort of an idea of, okay, it takes... I think cutting out, um, you know, we um, the, or this sense of, I'm just going to try and be kind to myself while I'm gently following this little nugget of an idea. Yep. Um, seems counterintuitive in that you think that it's all it should all be discipline and it should all be or I did I definitely had this idea of like if I was a writer I would just you know I would sit at I'd sit at my typewriter and bleed right you know that's yeah. and instead it was it was much it has been so much better both for me and for the writing I think to go oh that's interesting why would I write that sentence or what might that mean um, and again I think any I, I have written this novel more quickly partly because I'm just not spinning my wheels in fear quite so much. Yeah. I mean, having a book come out and do well and 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 do well in a way that that 
is, I guess, would have just completely blown my tiny mind at the beginning of the writing process is then this fear of there's the the potential for lack for for the next book not to hit those guide rails or whatever. And then I just remind myself, like, I could still be in that room trying to write that first book. And so I one of my goals with book two is to enjoy it more because I think that when I am in that space of gentle curiosity, my writing is my characters benefit when I'm kind to myself. Like I can go into more interesting places when I'm not beating myself up for working the way I do or feeling the way I do. Or, I yeah. love that. It's fantastic. Thank <laughs> you. You know, it's brilliant. Uh, uh, yeah. Kindness is a, is, a craft, is a question of craft. Yep. You have to find a way to talk to yourself and, and, and be in yourself while writing that is not... Um, that would not get you sued by HR if you were a real person. Like if you, yeah, your yeah, yeah. writing boss was taken to court by your right, like the, the person actually sits there and does the work and has to listen to this voice, you know, then that's not, you don't want to work in a way that would get you sued. No, 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 no. no. And I, I, I really love how you bring it back to your characters. If you're being kind to yourself and you're allowing yourself that space to be created, your characters are going to benefit. And I think that's great. If if someone is having um, trouble kind of separating themselves, you know, or, you know, being kind to themselves, then, yeah, think about your character. And maybe it's that external kind of kindness that will... Yeah, and I, I, I lack any kind of moral backbone when it comes to characters. Like, I really tend to... They... Everyone makes sense to themselves in some way or no one is the villain of their own story, you yes. know. So I yeah, think... Yeah. I'm really able to follow characters to whatever twisted position they need to occupy to make sense for themselves. Um, and it's easier to do that when I'm not all twisted up in knots about yeah, yeah, myself. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. And now we have Grace, a book reviewer. Welcome back to season two, Grace. We've missed you. I know. Been on a little hiatus, but I'm here. And I'm queer. Yes. <laughs> here for more books reviews. Fantastic. And uh, what do we have this week? Gary Lonesborough, We Didn't Think It Through? That is correct. It's his newest book. I think it came out just a couple of months ago. And what what is this one about? So we, we had The Boy from the Mish was his debut. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so it's very different from that like it's maybe not as directly queer except for the fact that of course Gary is um there is a gay side character to the main character but how it really goes is it's following the story of Jamie who's a 16 year old aboriginal boy who's been living with his aunt and uncle after being taken away from his parents care when he was six he's lost in a world that doesn't really care about him getting drunk and doing drugs and quote unquote a nuisance to society One night, after being bullied one too many times by some racist peers, Jamie and his best friends, Dally and Lenny, steal a car and all hell breaks loose because they definitely didn't think it through. So it's a short yet powerful look into the juvenile detention and foster care systems, uh, especially for young Aboriginal kids in Australia. It isn't a happy book. However, it does leave you with some hope for the future and a better understanding of a system that is definitely broken. But, yeah, it's really powerful. Some of it is written in prose as well, which was really cool. So maybe something different for Gary, I'm not sure. Yeah, like just so many good quotes. Uh, So, I mean, one of the very first quotes is, the thought comes to me, this is how I die. Uh, We've also got big men beating the hell out of small boys. 
which is pretty poignant, I think. And there's another quote from when Jamie's in the uh, juvenile detention center saying, you know, they'll kill us. We don't matter to them. They don't care about us. We're just black faces. It's YA, but it, so it's written, there are topics that are pretty heavy, but they're yeah. written in a YA way. So they're not like yeah. too gory or anything. I think Gary said like 14 year olds and up. It's for, was maybe a little young for me, but at the same time, like still definitely five stars. Yeah, it was definitely, it was captivating and I definitely recommend it. I'd say, you know, definitely good to have a conversation with your kids if you're reading it, but really worth worth it. And hopefully um, see it, um, you know, get into school curriculum and things like that. Yeah, right? exactly. I mean, there's a healthy dose of like swearing and a bit of uh, banter going on and like, yeah. you know, drug, drug use and alcohol abuse and stuff. But it's still like very relevant with what's happening in the news that we see so often and stuff. So I think it's, Absolutely. yeah, it's it's one that I think will really hit home. Right. And is it a stand, like it's a standalone, is there any sort of crossover with his first book? Is he doing that kind of universe thing or? Um, not that I noticed. Yeah, but not a sort of reoccurring character. That no. You, no. No, it's its own, its own story. And, yeah, really well done. Fantastic. Thank it you is. so much, Grace. You're uh, welcome. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Sounds good. I'll be here. <laughs> All right. Thank you. That's Grace, our book reviewer, Blarney Books and Art, reviewing Gary Lonesborough, We Didn't Think It Through, and that is out now. Massive congratulations on, on your success. It's been phenomenal. I wanted to ask you about the Lambdas. Can you tell our listeners about that? So that's a, a American award. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a, a queer organisation based out of New York that's been running since 1989, um, and they run the Lambda Literary Awards. So they're an advocacy group specifically targeted at literature, um, which I think is fabulous. And also, so there's... They mentor young writers, they seek funding for programs that are in the service of supporting queer writing, and they do support queer writing that's not necessarily by queer writers in terms of, okay. but in terms of, so the, the award that I won was the Lambda Literary Award for Queer Mystery. I yeah. kind of joked, oh, queer mystery, that's also how I identify. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, um, as a bisexual in a straight passing relationship, there's often moments at festivals where people go, haven't I just seen you talk about being a queer writer and you're kissing your partner? And I'm like, yeah, we're the B from the yeah, LGBTQIA+. Yeah. Plus. Not a silent <laughs> um, And so what's the point of this? I got <laughs> off track there. But um, so the award itself is to to seek out writing that showcases queer characters. Yeah. But then, um, for example, I believe all the judges have to identify as queer. Right. And so, and they certainly all the, the kind of advocacy work and mentorship type stuff. It's very targeted at queer writers, which I think is absolutely the whole point and what is so great about what they do. Absolutely. And I mean, it was just so cool. Like the award, you, the, I, I attended online. Yeah. And like, um, Alison Bechtel presented the award, like two awards before mine. And like Alexander Chi was in the, like, uh, the E waiting room with me and, Wow. Um, and I just want to, oh, Alexander, I love you. Hi. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't. But um, this, what is so, so cool about it is, I guess, a space where 
there were book, so many books I hadn't heard of. And part of that is that it's in the States, right? It is a very, um, your book has to be published in the USA um, to be eligible to be entered. And I'm really lucky that I have an incredibly supportive, very queer-friendly publisher. I must And I must say that um, the book is, has a different title in the US. It's called Dirt Creek. And also has a very different positioning, which has been really interesting. So mm-hmm. in Australia, I've been fortunate that it's been marketed as like the, a crime read of the summer, or you know, yeah. like a kind of commercial crime. Absolutely. Whereas in the US, it's very much marketed as a queer mystery. Wow. And it's been put up for, and there are all these queer sort of opportunities to talk about writing in a specifically queer way or awards that are like the Lambdas that are targeted at queer writing. But the Lambdas itself was this, I hadn't heard of it before I knew that I was being nominated for the award. And yeah. then when I found out about it, I was like, I'm so glad this exists. Yes. Seeing that you've won the mystery, is just like, wow, it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm still waiting on my physical award. Yeah. Um, they, they said it's in the post. I'm like, I really hope it arrives. I'd really like to. Um, and it's just cool to be like, there is a queer mystery car- like yeah, category. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, and it's, yeah, I think it's a good thing. So how has your US publisher, when you say they've they've um, you know, marketed it queer mystery, what does that mean in terms of its place? I mean, do you ever get to see, uh, I guess, online how it's been sold? Or yeah, I definitely get a sense that it is presented to booksellers in that way. It'll sometimes get start little staff notes that are like, "This is a great queer mystery," or you know, "There's a a, a sapphic uh, kind of cop storyline," or you know. Yeah. Um, because I think the thing about the USA is the readership is so big that even a niche section of like crime is still a viable option for a publisher, perhaps in a way that not so much in Australia. Because yeah. a, a, even a small slice of that bigger pie is, is enough for a publisher to go, okay, this is worthwhile to put energy into this. And it's not that they haven't put me forward for more kind of general things either. Amazing. I was really lucky the book was a Barnes & Noble mystery pick. Amazing. Um, which was massive. That's, yeah, That's why the US, USA Today thing happened because yeah. it sold enough books in that, that week that it was first at Barnes & Noble or whatever yeah. to be in that list for that week. So, so were you surprised um, because of how it had been um, marketed and was so successful here that they – did that approach it was more that i was surprised how australia marketed the book right because i'm yeah. like yeah it's my weird little book of, yeah. you know yeah. and then it's kind of they saw uh quotes from people like jane harper and Anne Cleves, yeah. and yeah, yeah. so it just was not their focus and they wanted to sell you know their their target market seemed to be everybody yeah. um which i'm very on board with because i think oh absolutely it, yeah there's still the same queer characters there's literally only a few words difference between the two and one of which is there's a joke, or not even a joke. One character says to another, "Are you taking the piss out of me?" And my US US editor, bless her soul, said, "Why would you take someone else's piss?" That's, that's their, and I don't know if this is a universal US thing, but she definitely got stuck on it. So we changed it to, "Are you joking?" Which yeah, because it right. didn't matter. The line it yeah, wasn't yeah. not to get caught up in that. Yeah. But I got to keep all my other Australianisms, use and, and stuff. So it was more the other way around, like how they marketed the book really made sense to be in the US. Yes. But I'm, of course, yes. endlessly grateful because I live in Australia. Yeah. And so the wider the book goes here, the more events I get to go to, the more readers I get to talk to and meet. And, Absolutely. And the yeah. more readers get to engage with those characters, right? Yeah. Um, so I think it's just, it has brought home to me how much a book is 
a commodity in a way. And so you make it as a piece of art and you give it everything. Yeah. And then people, the, it's one of the only pe- like art forms that one half of it is very sort of craftsman-like. And then there is this commercial component wherein it is reproduced and is sold. And that's not, I'm not, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It brought home to me how much I have no control over that half of it. Yeah. Um, and my, the, my best bet is to focus on the first part, which is making the book that yeah. I want to write. And so I think whatever happens, even if the next book is not in that, it'll be a, a, like I want it to be crime. I think it'll sit on that shelf. But if it's yeah. not a commercial success in the way Dirt Town has been, I think I just want to make sure that I've written the, the story that I want to write. Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is a great segue to a question we ask all our guests was a writing question, which is around any advice or top tips for aspiring stories. See, I kind of went in front of myself because it would have been kindness. It would absolutely be be kind to yourself. So I had that already in my head to say, I think, and which is why I landed on it. Really practical, really check your junk mail every single day. Maintain a level of junk mail hygiene that means you will never miss any kind of reply from someone you're trying to read your manuscript, mentorship. Like I know this sounds like the number of times people have contacted me and I've sent them back a thoughtful response that would have been helpful to them and I've never heard from them and I've gone, oh, that's probably gone to their junk. Or the famous stories like Helen Garner won, was it the, well, no, she won some big prize, right, and like thousands of dollars and had gone to her junk and she just didn't, you know, know about it. And eventually somebody called her. But I think for those, if you're applying for things and you're putting yourself out there as a writer in any way, and that includes sending your manuscript to friends because um, it doesn't take much to just delete all of the Bitcoin and all of the penal enlargement and all of that and just make sure nothing is slipping through the... Because a writer is always sending stuff out and hoping for stuff to come back. So if you get in that habit, 10% better life as a writer. Oh, fantastic. You're never going to miss a festival invite. You're never going to... Yeah, 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 I love that. Thank you. <laughs> so That's, kindness is like very fluffy. Kindness, check very time. practical. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. And on the show, Haley, we also have a shout out. But how can listeners connect with you on social? Do you have any book events? Um, well, my Instagram is definitely my my most happy internet place in terms yeah. of I spend a lot of time wasted down that sort of the real thing, you yeah. know. So I check my messages there usually. Yes. Okay. And in terms of what I've got coming up, I'm going to the National Young Writers Festival. This will be the last year I'm young enough to go. So I thought I'm doing an event with James Mackenzie Watson. Oh, brilliant. The end of September. So I'm really excited about that. Yeah. I'll be at the Rose Scott Women Writers Festival coming at, that's actually before the um, Newcastle one. So brilliant. But it's all, I I do maintain events on my website and I try and post everything on Instagram. Fantastic. And we'll put those up on the show notes, your your handles and your website. Um, would you like to shout out any LGBTIQA artists, books, art shows, organisation? Oh, absolutely. One I have to put a good word in for is the NQueer, the Queer Writers Festival that happens in Sydney. Follow them, stay up to date with what they're, they're doing. Um, I have to also shout out Lambda Literary Organisation is a good one to follow. I know it's sort of this US thing, but I've been finding all new writers Great. through them. Recommendations, I have to recommend Cadence Bell's memoir, the All of It, A Bogan um, Rhapsody. Uh, I know you've had Cadence on the show and people yeah. are, if you haven't read it and you've been wondering, absolutely. like, should I read it? Absolutely. Yeah, Do yourself a favour yeah. and read that book. And in terms of a crime recommendation, I love Dorothy Porter's A Monkey's Mask, which is a verse novel, so a poetry novel about yeah. a lesbian cop. So yeah. can't go wrong. 
all the good things. Brilliant. I love that. And our closing question for you, Hayley Scrivener, is what is your hope for the LGBTIQA plus? I think that sense of sustaining pride and remembering, I, I guess it kind of, I, I see a real connection between my queer identity and my identity as a writer in that you always want to be sending the lift back down and bringing everyone with you. And I think particularly as someone who's often straight passing in my life or that I know that I always really enjoy hearing about particularly bi people being out and being proud about that, for example, I get a lot of sustenance from that. And I think sometimes it can feel like you're going, look at me, look at me. And I think it's that sense of look at us, look at us. Um, yeah. So I think anything that if you're erring on the side of why am I saying this or why am I, I have gotten so much strength from the people or my, my trans friends around me being openly trans and reasserting that and kind of, I think you can polite your way. It would be a disservice to all the people that have gone before us to kind of, um, and I'm a naturally kind of withdrawn, quiet person, even though it doesn't always seem like that when I'm talking because I get really passionate about writing. But I think there are more than one way to be queer as well. But I think care and mentorship and sending the lift down can be part of our toolkit and I'm so glad there are loud activists and people that, that are more bolshy and take that space. But there's room for all of us. Yeah. I hope that's an oh, answer. I absolutely love <laughs> that. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time and for, for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's yes. really fun. Please check out our show notes on Words and Nerds, Blarney Books and Art, and rwrmcdonald.com for links, reviews, and the interview transcript. Until next time, this is QWS Podcast.